Hello, Indigo here. Before we jump into this episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast, we've got some content warnings for you all. In this episode, we mention alcohol, sex, and drug use. If any of these things are things that you want to look out for, time codes of when those discussions start and end can be found in the show notes below. Got it? Great. On to the episode with you then. Go on. Get. There's also the girl with the train tattoo, which is just a different series entirely. (laughs) That's why Tom was the tank engine fanfic, and I would ask you to respect it, please. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) It's like, oh no, bad news, someone got run over by a train. (laughs) But it turns out Thomas the Tank Engine's a serial murderer. That's the big twist. He just waits for damsels in distress to be tied, and he speeds up. (laughs) Him and his accomplice, Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. I am Blue, and I'm joined by Red. Say hi. It's cracking. Uh, uh, hello, everybody. <laughs> a little quick on the draw, and we are joined by a very special uh, guest, Mr. Daniel Green, a YouTube uh, fantasy, science fiction, and just general booktube uh, person, and recently published author. Daniel, say hello. Let's let's clarify self-published. And, uh, <laughs> oh, it thank counts. you. Oh, you put out a book. You get to you get to praise yourself. It's okay. There's physical or, copies. We it's we real. will praise you for you. It's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Uh, I it's always interesting to see how people introduce me because like booktubers <laughs> often throw it around. Uh, recently, I've had a streak of professional nerd, which I think just sounds huh. cool. It's far cooler oh, yeah. than I've earned, but it's it's a good one. <laughs> oh, actually, I I'm I'm completely overstepping. I did not call you the disheveled goblin. I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I forgot. <laughs> I get in my excitement. I forgot from. your most important title. <laughs> I forgot to ask where that came from all the time. I have no idea. It just appeared. Huh. And then Brandon Sanderson called me it, and I'm like, now that's that's forever. Oh now. my god. Yeah. Once once Brando Sando makes a cannon, you, there's nowhere you can run. <laughs> Getting shouted out by Brandon Sanderson was by far the weirdest part of our YouTube career too. Really? What did he What did he do for you guys? If you don't mind me asking. Well, like we, we it didn't do a crazy amount, but I was just like. R- I didn't know that like professional authors knew about us because <laughs> um, I think someone like mentioned like on Twitter to us like, hey, uh, Brandon Sanderson shouted you out on like this episode of the podcast. And I was like, really? And I looked it up and I read through the transcript and I was like, oh, OK, yeah, you know, uh, huh? Yeah, there we are. And yeah, it says Brandon said that it could be a different Brandon. We don't know for sure. But like the whole time I was processing this, I was like looking over at the copy of Way of Kings I had next to my bed. Like, that's the guy. That's the guy who watches my trope talks, apparently. So absolutely wild i loved it it's it's always interesting to like when those like old forms of media clash with like our new not nearly mm-hmm. as professional like we're just <laughs> hobgoblin it together like forms and it's, oh, it's yeah. and now that they're like stepping into our turf it's really neat to see like how those have like authors are adapting sanderson is definitely the one who's like making the biggest explosion in terms of like authors coming on youtube and stuff but also like yeah. weeks mm-hmm. abercrombie like we're seeing all these people now realize like, oh, if I make a booktube type channel, I'll have a whole other source of income and revenue and be able to talk with my fans. It's just neat. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like how a few years back when, you know, all the celebrities figured out if they had a Twitter, they could seem more approachable (laughs) and build the brand. (laughs) But like, this is coming from a much more genuine place because like every author I've seen doing booktube just really wants to be like, yeah, I'd love to talk about my stuff and how I write and my ideas and, and things like that. Let's do it. And that's, mwah, it's great to see. 
Turns out it's uh, authors are giant nerds who like talking about their stuff. Who would have known? <laughs> what were the odds? It's like it's like a convention every day of the year. They could just keep talking. But uh, speaking of people talking about their own stuff, uh, we here at OSP had a couple uh, a couple videos on on the old YouTube uh, recently. Red, you had uh, a blockbuster, uh, the story of Medea. Uh, yeah. And her deadbeat husband Jason, uh, and I had uh, a video on the history of Poland, which really took it out of me. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like a completely different person after getting that done. You're like, wow, I'm so free, and and the world is beautiful again. Honestly, I, I got an email from my dad the evening after it went up. It was like, honestly, you know, it was it was one of your best videos. I'm really impressed, and I'm like, thanks, dad, because <laughs> I like the process of going from I know absolutely nothing about Poland except for World War II bad and also communism question mark, and then having to start all the way at the beginning and just going through everything. It's like, oh my god, look at all this super cool stuff, and oh my god, how did they survive this? Yeah, <laughs> it's just psychologically ask. draining. What made Poland so so tricky? What was such the hurdle here? Why was it yeah, so Yeah, it's in the intersection of lots of different movements of people. It's on the Northern European plain, uh, so it's basically just like open field for miles and miles and miles. Mm. So like every major migration of people through into or out of Europe goes through the area that is now Poland. <laughs> mm -hmm. So all these different people movements over the centuries combined with um, as Poland gets bigger, it reaches out over a very large stretch of territory, almost including like all of what we'd call like Eastern Europe nowadays. Um, but then in the 1700s, it got really complicated because the three neighboring empires or really like six if you draw up the line a little bit but like russia austria and germany were all like oh poland there is no natural border between me and them it's just an open field if i keep going i can conquer them and then all three of them did it so it's hard because poland's history is so intertwined with what's going on with its neighbors because it's so much of a constant back and forth and it's cool because you get things like huge um, people migrations in the early medieval period and a huge Jewish population developing in Poland to the point where in the 1600s, three quarters of the world's Jews lived in Poland, which is why, Ayo. like, the Ashkenazi, like, diaspora all kind of comes from Poland. Uh, so yep. it's really cool in that regard, but then it becomes very complicated when you have to deal with, like, all of the like geopolitics around <laughs> Poland that conspired to make their lives very bad. So but it's tough to isolate a narrative that's like talking about one thing without branching into tangents and, and side notes and details and other things that's like, oh, I can talk about this like story with, oh, the Polish wing at Hussars at the Siege of Vienna, but then I have to explain the Austrian situation. I have to explain what the Ottomans were doing. So it's hard to keep it in one lane and not mm -hmm. make it everyone else's story because it's very easy to tell the history of Poland as here's what other people did to Poland and it's hard <laughs> to put Poland in the driver's seat. So for that reason, it's it's tough to just keep it organized, really. Well, it, it sounds like you're also in, in danger of stepping into the territory of oversimplification because you have to find that balance <laughs> with something that's so complex. I imagine you don't want to oh oversimplify, boy. but you mm, also want to yeah. like, like, you know, condense. Yeah. Yeah, so that that is extremely tough, but also it's it is a weird space because I have to avoid. Uh, how do I put this diplomatically? Uh, I have to not do propaganda um, because the current <laughs> Polish government has a very specific view of their history. And I have to make sure that in saying, wow, look at how great of a job Poland did of not dying, that I don't 
contort the facts to create a narrative that is deterministic of, oh, Poland only exists when everyone is ethnically Polish and Catholic, because look, here was this in-the-past version of Poland that was multi-religious, multi-ethnic, you know, multi-everything, and that was cool, and I have to... Uh, I'm, there's, I might there's rewind a little bit because, yeah, th uh. there's some ethno-nationalism mm. at work here, but I, I have to make sure that I don't oversimplify in such a way that reinforces harmful narratives um, about that history in, in either direction. Uh, so yeah. it's tough because it is such a, a loaded topic, um, both in terms of like the negative stereotypes that have been that have been pushed about Poland, all of which were basically completely made up, um, mm. but also not getting into yeah Poland rah rah rah, and then doing uh, <laughs> doing um, uh, a propaganda. So that is one of the very very tough areas in which the modern history brushes up against the history history in a way that I need to be very careful about. So maybe I'm getting a little too real here, but that was one of the reasons why it was super, super tough. Funny story about that specifically. Uh, when you said that you were going to be doing Polish history, I was like, wow, it's wild that I don't know anything about Polish history because my dad's side of the family is, in fact, Ashkenazi Jewish from Poland, like left in like the 1890s or so. Uh, so all I knew about Poland from them is it sucked. We left. And that's all I got. So when you were doing this, I was like, I'm really curious about Poland. And when I read through your script, I was like, yeah, wow, there's a lot going on here. But it, yeah, it sucked. We left. I get it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I will, I'm going to go ahead and uh, lean into a possible Polish stereotype. I don't know. But uh, I will say I've been trying a lot of different like foods from different countries, trying to like expand my palate horizons. Mm -hmm. Polish mm -hmm. food is terrible. I am sorry. <laughs> I do not know enough about it to say either way, so I, <laughs> I, I cannot comment. <laughs> Polish sausage is pretty good, but it's, I mostly have that in Italian dishes. So. That's fair, yeah. but I will say it's better than Irish food. That is all Ooh. I can contribute as well. Irish food is miserable. Oh no, Honestly, the other half it, of my family. <laughs> it, 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 is a, it is kind of a known thing that like the further extreme north of the equator or extreme south of the equator you go, the less like flavor the food has because like no spices grow there. So it's exactly. like equatorial food, so good, so delicious. Icelandic food. Uh... <laughs> yeah, after a while, it's just mutton, basically. Yeah. Uh, as this is coming from someone who is like heritage Irish big time. Terrible oh, yeah. food. Terrible food. <laughs> yeah. You got to yeah. get creative when you're that far north. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. No, fun stuff. It was pretty well received, though. Like, it. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the people we got in the comments, like, normally when you cover the history of a country, we get a lot of people from that country in the comments, and a lot of them are like, oh, you know, I can't believe you missed this thing. Or, man, that was really good. And in this case, we got a lot of people who were like, yeah, it did suck, didn't it? Which, which is, like, pretty validating, I think. Yeah, I, I also got a lot of comments to the effect of, wow, this was actually much better organized than I thought this video had any right to be. You, you surprisingly did a good job, and your Polish pronunciation was good, question mark? Um, I, I was very pleased with the response uh, to the video, with the sole exception of people who wanted me to talk about the Winged Hussars more. But oh, fuck yeah. the winged hussars. They're not interesting. <laughs> it's like, well, here's why. Here's the thing. The thing with the hussars is, sure, cool helmets, spears, Battle of Vienna, whatever. The problem with it is, is that people's understanding of Poland on, like, the historical internet 
is entirely subsumed by the meme of haha hussars op like get wrecked you know ottoman <laughs> siege works whatever to the point where no discussion of poland can basically happen without someone jumping in like look at this one unit from polish history i know about so it completely just stomps out any meaningful discussion to be like haha wing boys go burr it's like <laughs> if someone was trying to talk about rome and it's like oh yes the guys with the silly broom helmets I know about Roman history. It's like, no, you fucking don't. Shut up. So, You're going to get some strongly worded Reddit posts from this one, my friend. And I do not care. <laughs> so honestly, like, that was the biggest, like, me asserting my foot on, on this of, like, the thing with the Hussars is it's so overblown that I specifically just did not talk about them. And a lot of the comments that I got of, like, oh, you didn't talk about the Hussars were completely, like, like outnumbered by oh, wow, thank God for actually telling the history and not just leaning into the dumb memes. I really appreciate that. So I feel completely justified uh, in my decisions, uh, and I cannot be stopped. Uh, uh, get mad. Validation. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so, so that, that was me. That was Poland. It was, it was a very elevated state uh, uh, of, of emotions, uh, elevated state of, of research effort. It was just a lot, and I'm so proud of myself for doing it, but I am so inordinately glad that it is done. So let's mm. talk about Medea instead. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this one, uh, it was actually a Patreon request from way back when. We, we used to do those uh, when we'd had patrons for long enough. We'd be like, hey, is there a video topic you want us to do? Because uh, the videos take us so long to make, we kind of had to discontinue that because it was really tiring. But somebody a was like, A lot of people hey, also would... just didn't respond to them, too. So it's yeah. like, I don't, I feel bad, like, doing this thing. where And also, Poland was a Patreon request. Wait a minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Medea uh, was one of the requests, and I was like, wow, this is really, like, this is a good topic. This is something I would have picked myself. Because I think most people, like, what they know about Medea either comes from a basic understanding of the mythology, which is, oh, yeah, Jason and the Argonauts, he, he had a wife named Medea, and maybe some bad stuff happened. Or from Percy Jackson, where it's, oh, yeah, isn't she some, like, turbo bitch CEO mall <laughs> owner? Which isn't exactly... Uh, accurate in the slightest, but that's okay, that's fine. Just because my urban fantasy Medea would be completely unrecognizable doesn't mean I'm bitter about this version. Um, Hashtag but... not my girl boss. <laughs> God, Medea is such a weird, weird character because a lot of the time when you're reading a Greek myth, you're like, all right, this is not complex. These characters are not really characters in the modern conceit. You know, they don't have much in the way of personal motivation they're not even particularly all that heroic they just kind of do things yeah. um and a lot of greek heroes they kind of feel like vehicles for pre-existing myths like um what uh, i have this theory that uh the 12 labors of heracles were in part uh used to explain the recent importation of the babylonian zodiac uh there are 12 of them it's a little suspicious like half of them line up perfectly it's very odd um, but, like, Heracles was a pre-existing hero. There, there's theories that he might actually be Neolithic in origin. Like, he, he goes way far back, wow. which is crazy. Uh, but, like, you know, Heracles' personality and motivation, it's mildly consistent. But it really doesn't matter. These stories aren't character-driven. They're used to explain stuff. Um, Medea is not that. Medea is wild because the people <laughs> in those plays are very, very human in the most tragic way possible. Like, you know, on the one hand, you've got the myths where the heroes are, like godlike and no, basically not even characters and then on the other hand you have greek tragedies where the problem is everyone is too human uh and i i did a like a trope talk on the tragedy genre a while back which was i think really good context for this because it's like 
The problem with a tragedy is that the person who might work perfectly well in most contexts gets put into one context where their fundamental unchanging character flaws react very, very poorly with their environment. And the story of Jason and Medea is exactly that. And yeah. um, if you look at the Argonautica, which was written later, and uh, I, I heard some muttering in the Discord that the Argonautica wasn't, like, wildly popular or influential at the time, but, like, I needed to know Medea's life story, and the Argonautica wrote it down, so that's why I used it. Um, in the first half, it's it's a hero story, you know? There's no flaws present. Medea and her husband Jason, or not husband at the time, uh, do very standard heroic things. They go on a quest, they, they solve impossible tasks through cunning and magic and, and potions and stuff. Uh, and they escape, and they do some war crimes on the way, but that's, you know, that's not that weird for Greek heroes. Uh, <laughs> what has the protagonist <laughs> not done a couple of war crimes in yeah. the former Yugoslavia? <laughs> oh, God. Um, but then you get the Euripides play Medea, which was, as far as we can tell, a lot more influential. Although, uh, one caveat on that, in Euripides' version of Medea, Medea kills her children. This appears to have been a Euripides-only invention. In previous versions, Medea actually did not kill her children. Uh, they often ended up dead anyway, but Medea didn't do it, which kind of makes her a little bit less morally ambiguous. But in the tragic play Medea, of course, the problem is that Medea and Jason are, you know, married. Jason swore an oath to love only her for the rest of his life. And then he just super cash breaks that uh, to court some rando princess because he's like, well, it's more important if Greek royalty likes me. Uh, and this is a very bad decision. This is so dumb on his part, but it does kind of make sense. We know he's not all that bright. Uh, and of course, Medea does what she always does, murder. And uh, you end up with a very classic tragedy. Uh, she, she kills the royal family. She escapes completely unscathed and just kind of fucks off into the rest of the mythos in her flying chariot with the tacit approval of the entire pantheon of gods. And it's bonkers to hear that because it's like, this is a, this is supposed to be like a, like a Greek hero story. And, you know, the Greek heroes do sometimes die fairly embarrassing, ignoble deaths, but usually their downfall via hubris is because of the gods, not because their powerful sorceress ex-wife ruined their life and then got away scot-free. And when I was reading it, all I could think about was, this is the most weirdly morally nuanced portrayal of what I would think would be an easy antagonist. Like, Medea, you know, Jason is in the position of the hero. It's kind of weird to me that Medea is framed in such a, like, sympathetic light. Euripides' play Medea is almost entirely from her perspective and largely sympathetic to her being so upset about this. Uh, I mean, honestly, that's the thing with tragedy is you have, like, a lot of earlier myths and epics and stuff where it's, you know, altogether fairly straightforward. But when you get to the tragedies in the theater, that's when, like, you get the explosion of nuanced storytelling in the Greek canon. Like, you don't see a whole bunch of it before, you don't see the most of it after, but when you're, like, no. in that, like, century and a half of, like, the, tra the tragedians are on, they're just going for it, you get some really, really great stuff, and I think Medea is definitely an exemplary, uh, uh, piece of that, like, broader scope of, uh, of just really good, complex storytelling that you yeah. really only see, uh, in the, the tragic, um, tragic canon of literature and, and not really anywhere else because nowhere else like supports that kind of storytelling in in the ancient greek world aside from that it's mm. it's, it's good it's good it's so, good <laughs> red you're hitting on a topic that i find completely and utterly fascinating and i want to know ho, your ho. thoughts on this for this character medea so no. i love seeing how characters that have been around for ages evolve in their perception over time like there are characters oh, yeah. that go from heroes to villains villains to heroes depending on how the world views 
what they did morally and how reinterpretations, people adding things to characters. I mean, it can yeah. be from everything from Jesus Christ all the way to, <laughs> let's say, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Like his, his presentation in the books is much more, I want this throne, I'm going to go get it. Whereas in the mm. movie, it made him more likely to be hesitant to be this more stoic figure. Yeah, so is noble. this, you think, another example where this is a character who kind of like over time reflects what is like the actual intent of society molding her character to change for their modern values? It's possible. I, I feel like, because I, I approach a lot of the uh, Greek gods from that exact perspective. When I when I try and research how they changed over time, a lot of the time it is exactly that. Like they, they used to fill this role and then the society changed and now they fill this role and their presentation changed too. Um, with Medea, I, I feel like I don't have enough information to make any concrete statements on what I think the role she played was. But there are a lot of people who theorize she might have been a goddess originally uh, because she fills a role in the story traditionally filled by the gods. I mean, in the Greek tragedies, if you are a human and you kill anyone, anyone in your family, like your parents or your kids, you are in huge trouble. It never goes well. Uh, Orestes uh, is like the archetypical example of this because he is basically forced by the gods to kill his mother because his mother killed his father. And then afterwards for killing his mother, he's hounded by the Furies because, you know, that's a no-no. Like he was told by the gods to do it, but he shouldn't have done it, but he had no other choice. That's normally how the moral judgment in Greek tragedies works. Medea doesn't have any of that. Like the whole end of the play is essentially Jason being like, you, you did a bad, you're gonna be punished by the gods and the furies. And Medea's like, dude, you broke your divine oath. You didn't need to swear before the gods that I was gonna be your only love, but you did. And now you're an idiot. So like it's, she doesn't suffer anything from that play that she doesn't cause herself. And like, that's the whole thing. Killing her children is framed as this huge moral like, conundrum for her although apparently in some versions she's like kind of it's a mercy killing like the corinthians would have done way worse to them for killing their king and princess um it, it, that definitely shifts the the morality of medea's actions does get rewritten uh depending on the author and in a, in apollonius rhodes version in uh the argonautica medea is 100 percent sympathetic like whenever anything bad happens she's always kind of shrinking and worried about it and like oh no i i must kill my brother but i'm sad about it like that's not really her later portrayal. Uh, and he's clearly leaning into this more sympathetic angle to up the tragedy and to highlight Jason's later betrayal of her. Like, there's so much dramatic irony in that book. It's a very deliberate choice. Euripides' Medea from earlier frames her as a lot more cunning, but also sympathetic. Like, we're in her head for the whole play. We know why she's making these decisions. And then she gets away scot-free and basically has a happy ending. Um, but later authors lean way farther into the Medea as villain angle. Like, because she's not portrayed that way in the earlier text. She's she's much more nuanced. But, you know, in all the urban fantasy versions, she's either, like, hmm. completely sympathetic or completely heartless. Because it's easier to reframe Jason as an unconditional hero. And then Medea becomes an unconditional villain. But, you know... Or, yeah. or vice versa. So. Would, would you say that's from the time where we're just seeing like more female characters portrayed negatively? Because that did kind of rise throughout, you know, as mm. Greek <laughs> times went to the past, there was this more of this anti-strong female sentiment and all kinds of stuff coming out through literature and religion. Does that kind of just oh, align yeah. with that timeline-wise? 
I think that could have factored into it. I, part of the problem is Ancient Greece wasn't the best with nuanced female characters anyway. Oh, sure. Um, Euripides was uh, writing in Athens during the Golden Age, uh, which yeah. was uh, the time when women had to stay on the second floor of a house if guests were over, because yep. lest they be seen. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, part of yeah. Why, that's part of why I was so surprised by how he wrote Medea, because I was like, wow, he's in her head. He's sympathizing with her. And this, like... Husband doing shitty things to his wife, so wife takes bloody revenge and is completely vindicated. That's spicy as hell for Golden Age Athens. Yeah, it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You're absolutely right. Like, yeah, Greece did not write female characters great, <laughs> but it was more like malicious, as though especially like the Middle Ages came about and a lot of reinterpretations mm. of Greek myths came through. Uh, they just seem to be more hateful in their writing of these characters. <laughs> what I've seen. I think that could absolutely factor into it. I mean, I, I had a ton of paintings of this available, and in a lot of them, you can kind of see, like, Jason is often framed in, like, horror, shielding his family from Medea, this witch queen rising in a golden chariot. And I'm like, ah, Jason wasn't shielding nobody. <laughs> Everyone was already dead <laughs> at this point. Um, but in some, and, uh, I mean, this might be reading a little too far into it, but in most of those, like, classic portrayals of Medea, they paint her with, like, black hair, she canonically is very blonde. She's the granddaughter of the sun. It makes sense. And I feel like some of that is like, well, it's easier to make brunettes evil, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there, there's yeah. stereotypes at play here. And I, I feel like some of them show through in the way that the artists represented her. Um, and in a lot of them, Jason is kind of pleading and Medea is like stoic and unfeeling, which at the time, big no-no for women. So like, I think that part of the problem here is there are ways that we could interpret her that... Eh, we don't really have the context to, to nowadays immediately say like, oh, at the time, this would have been a sign that she was completely irredeemable. Whereas now we're like, I mean, you know, she kind of was right about most of the things she said. <laughs> Maybe not the murder so much, but who knows? Yeah. Um, She's a uniquely complex character coming out of a, of a time that even for all of the the problems with, with, with Greece and women, um, <laughs> there are a lot of very nuanced other female characters in the Greek um, canon oh, yeah. of, uh, oh, yeah. of theater. So... Um, mm -hmm. She's definitely the most extreme example, but she does she does have some good company in there. So yeah, yeah I think the only no. thing that surprised me is that the urban fantasy portrayals nowadays are are split so much between she's completely evil and she betrayed Jason, and she's completely innocent and Jason completely betrayed her and broke her heart. Because either she's like she's this conniving villainess, or she's this poor innocent ingenue manipulated, and neither of those things are true. She had so much agency in her own story. You can't really pin her down in either of those, but it's much easier. And that's just how modern writers adapt her. And I'm just kind of like, guys, yeah. she's more complicated. Let her be complicated. Yeah. Um, but, anyway. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, so that was uh, that was my extended ramble about the process of researching the Medea thing. Uh, I did have a lot of fun with it. People seem to like it. Um, but yeah, so that's basically my video. Um, have you been up to anything particularly interesting in the last, you know, couple weeks or so, Mr. Daniel Green? <laughs> Uh, so I obviously have a book people can check out, but the last yes. video I published, I don't know if this is appropriate to get on in the <laughs> podcast, was about how not to write sex scenes. Uh, so if that's something you want to get into, we can go ham. Here's <laughs> but the that thing. was a rant. 
I I tragically have not seen that video. I saw it yesterday. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna watch this over the weekend. I have not gotten to it, but just the thumbnail for that video alone was like, oh boy, this is gonna be good. <laughs> I I was on FaceTime with a friend who kept egging me on to go more extreme for the thumbnail, and so now it's genuinely my least favorite and favorite thumbnail on the channel simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's it got an like... energy to it. It's got a powerful energy to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like neither of us have seen it yet, but I'm deeply curious to hear the basic rundown of your your thoughts on bad sex scenes in literature because I've seen some doozies there's some very uh standard points I touch on that I just need to reiterate again because they're such huge problems like stop calling a vagina a flower stop calling it a love canal it's not a gateway (laughs) to paradise it's a vagina you can even say with a Boston accent vagina I don't care just (laughs) don't call it the gateway to pleasure or whatever Martin's gonna put down secret Um, flower (laughs) Yeah, uh, please, I you know don't call penises members. That's just a personal one for me. I don't like it. Um, but I also I try to get into you know there's a very common practice because I try to like have like the jokes of the video like that that I'll frame around. But then I try to actually have some like substantive new ideas that I'll spend more time on that I don't be quite as jokey with. And the big one for this video was a lot of authors I feel like fail to use sex as a uh, character growth thing. Or something beyond mm. just oh, and now these characters are having sex and their their relationships in that point. Where in reality, they always just have good vanilla sex where people climax at the same time. Where I advocate for if you look to a lot of the best authors, they'll use sex. Maybe they had bad sex. Maybe it was not the best experience, and that highlights an underlying theme of their relationship. Maybe it's the best ever, but they're cheating, and maybe they're just Ooh. friends who get physical, and there's nothing more beyond that. I find that to be a much more human. Uh, approachable way to writing these things. And it was just basically kind of encouraging that more well-rounded approach to this. Um, and also more people need to be rejected because that's something in books mm-hmm. where essentially every time people are near each other and one of them's horny, they will do it. Whereas yeah. in real life, hey, I don't know if people notice that's not the case. Not that <laughs> like, I, I, I think people that, should notice. <laughs> there's a great comparison to be made between that and the more standards, uh, available for Disney movies version of this, which is like the kiss that signifies, ah, yes, and now we have achieved becoming a couple. There yeah. it is. We've 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 made it over the hurdle. Here we are. Which I feel like is such a simplistic way to use that as just like a shorthand for, and now these characters are boyfriend and girlfriend. Whereas Hi. I feel like it's it's much more interesting if, it, if you're right. Like it is explored as like a thing that happens and it's like sometimes it is super important maybe it's also like not the most important thing in the world there, there there's like not just like ah oh, yes and now they have sexed and now you know mission accomplished we did it reddit hooray <laughs> victory yeah, yeah. yeah. so i, I, I got I, it go go right ahead <clears throat> oh yeah sorry uh i the thing you said about like how the character isn't like present i i didn't realize before but i've absolutely noticed that like i for various reasons, I don't tend to find sex scenes in media particularly engaging. I tend to be like, all right, wake me when it's over. Yeah. But so much of that, like, for a while, I had the same attitude towards a lot of romantic subplot tropes. It's like, oh, the big kiss. All right. Yeah, here we go. And then I saw a few romantic subplots that really worked and were like, well written. And the characters were present for the entire subplot. And I was like, wow, this actually is really compelling. Mm-hmm. Maybe the thing I don't like is that it's badly written. Not that it's <laughs> about the, the romancy sexy times. Who knew? And, and, uh, the way you're describing, you know, with a lot of like the fictional sex scenes, it really is like 
Neither character's present. It's basically just two bodies smacking together in whatever yeah. way the author thinks is most attractive. And then afterwards, the characters like snap back in and are like, oh, let's talk about overthrowing Lord Darkness or whatever. And it's just, <laughs> okay, where, where was this during the whatever? How, are you taking your mind off this? What's going on? Precisely. Um, and I, I yeah. like to use the MCU when we're talking about this stuff because it's just like everyone knows these characters. They are universally understood. Um, mm -hmm. But like, let's say they decided to have a scene where Captain America and Black Widow hooked up. Is it more interesting that someone took those two action figures and said, look, they did their thing? <laughs> or to be more interesting to say, oh, uh, by the way, Captain America has the sexual, you know, habits of someone from the 1940s, and oh, he's also no. a virgin, so it wasn't great. And, like, that's more immersive to me. That's more accurate. Um, and he was hooked up on Peggy, so his mind wasn't in the moment. Like, meanwhile, Natasha Romanoff's a Russian spy. She's putting a thumb in a bum. Like, let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> so like wow. that's the way I approach it. So I, I recommended yeah. Fonda Lee writes really good sex scenes with LGBTQ plus inclusion, oh, uh, oh. which is also a whole other conversation where people will write oh, straight yeah. sex, they will not write gay sex. Um, and then there's a, I also recommended Joe Abercrombie because he's like one of the few authors who will be like, and then she spat semen out to the side, and I'm like, cool, <laughs> like yeah, neat, thanks, neat, you went there. <laughs> Um, but you're, I go, you're, gonna need to, you're gonna need to adjust the the content warning on this episode. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it's totally fine. You know, tag that this is gonna be marked explicit in Apple Podcasts, but uh, we'll put a content warning in the, the description. Hey, -oh. I do apologize. Yeah, no, it, 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 no, it's fine. You know, it's it, this is like a this is a legitimate part of fiction. Like, it, yeah. it's not a part that we personally tend to deal with much on our channel. Like, mostly when I write about romantic subplots, I'm like, most of these are bad. These three, I think, are good. Anyway, but you know, like, th this is a whole space of it that I just don't tend to deal with. But it's you know, it's it's not like it's a thing people don't write and don't need help writing because. Man, it, it really seems like it's a specific skill set, you know? Like, yeah. writing erotica is very much a difficult thing to do sexily. Oh, and it's and it's finding that balance between erotica and the fade to black, where it's just about mm. your intent as an author and what you think your audience will enjoy. So the people mm. who fade to black, I got no problem with that. I mean, my favorite fantasy author, Robert Jordan, always faded to black. And I'm like, I get it. I'm actually thankful for it, because Robert Jordan's sex scenes would be terrible. I'm 100% <laughs> sure. Oh, um, no. So yeah, I, I think there's just, it's not objective, but absolutely under no circumstances should you refer to it as a throbbing, glistening member. Just ah. stop it. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's part of what really throws me because I feel like, you know, something like a sex scene, you know, unless the, well, sorry, I'm generalizing. It feels like the, in, the emotional impact it's supposed to have on the audience is something that the author is trying to control. So if it's like, mm -hmm. if it is like an uncomfortable thing, if it's like a bad thing, the audience is supposed to be uncomfortable. If it's supposed to be like this beautiful union between two people in love, it's probably supposed to make the audience comfortable. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than increasingly complex euphemisms for genitalia. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is, sorry, man, I'm just going to put the book down if that's okay. I'll just you skip have to ahead have and like, see when we start talking. It's like a crossword like puzzle of like different euphemisms uh, for sex things. <laughs> that would be so funny. Oh my God. That's like so letters idea, across. How many letters is throbbing member again? <laughs> God, horrifying. I love it. Uh, but no, see. I mean, well, that, no. That... So Magnum Dong is eight down. That's not, <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> All right. But, but no, like that's that's the that's a conversation that really needs to be had. And um, I I mean, you could have probably made a whole video just about the way fanfic handles writing this kind of thing. Cause... I did. I did not touch on that for a very specific yeah. reason. It's that I do not want to get that crowd's attention. That is a Ooh. that is a bag of unfortunate. I'm not gonna look into. It's fair. That's very fair. Um, 
Flashbacks well, yeah, to My Immortal, they Frenched sexily. Stop, I re-listened to that recently. I was like, wow, I can't believe I got through most of this with a straight face. I, uh, Daniel, I really I, wanted to talk about Breach of Peace. I'm gonna, we're going to have to have you back so I can talk about this book. But I think it's time, we might need to move on to the uh, uh, to the next section in a second. But very fair. Um, real yeah. quick, we've got uh, a couple things uh, to plug. The Zeus and Hera pins in conjunction with... Medea are uh, on sale for the next um, week and a half from the time this podcast is being uploaded. Uh, yep. You can either get them now or at the end of the year. We're rerunning everything for Black Friday. Uh, additionally, if you ordered a Loki pin, it should be on its way. We had a lot of shipping trouble related to literally the Suez Canal blockage and a shortage yeah. of container ships. So they were manufactured like weeks ago. They've just been waiting to go. So really sorry for that delay but hopefully those should all be uh getting out to you soon if you haven't already gotten a shipping notification about that um yep. i feel so lucky the... we were part of that 10 to 15 percent that got blocked by the suez canal yeah. <laughs> uh or it was the knockoff effects really but uh hopefully mm. um we're anticipating that zeus and hera should show up like late july early august but uh the world be fucked so we can't entirely be sure but you know <laughs> we appreciate your patience in any case um, yep. Is there anything else that we need to mention before we switch over to the Q&A section, aside from Beach of Peace available now on all the major platforms? Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And well done. Very smooth. <laughs> That's what I call brand integration. Uh, no, I think we're good. All right, cool. Let's bounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Q&A portion of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast, where we answer your questions from Ask OS Pod on Discord. This time with special guest Daniel Green. Hello. Ooh. These questions uh, all come from you, our lovely fans. And this first question comes from one of our lovely patrons. If you want to support the podcast, support the channel, consider becoming a patron and have a chance for your question to be answered first on the podcast. This comes from Twilly Alchemist. To all, during projects, how do you stay motivated to finish them even when they're a bit grueling to do? Ooh. Oh, God. Lots of caffeine. Yeah. Yeah, caffeine, caffeine helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, mm. for me, I just really like finishing things. So, like, uh, for me, the tricky part is before the end is in sight, like getting through those first couple minutes worth of frames where I'm just like, oh, I got to fill this shit out. And then once I'm like, I can do this in one or two days, just flying to the finish line. Um, so it's the satisfaction of a job done. Yep. Not necessarily well done, but finished. <laughs> um, I, I am a horrendous workaholic. And so it's mm. just I'm never happier than when I'm working. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, you know, I need to talk to a therapist, but that's also how I do this. <laughs> I, one yeah. of the things I didn't mention is that, Daniel, you have videos Monday through Friday, which is quite a feat. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I used to do that while being a software engineer. Uh, that Ooh. I do not recommend for health reasons. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot, but also my quality of video was far lo lower than OSP or, you know, Aww. you guys who have these great animations. It's just me screaming at a camera. Uh, with occasionally funny edits and fart noises, so don't have, don't have, I don't do come like in too edits. high expectations. Well, I mean, here's the thing: it's super entertaining, and one of the things that we've learned from doing OSP is that like raw like production value is not a determinant of quality because there are a lot of channels that are really shiny and kind of crap, and there are a lot of channels no. that make a lot of, like that leverage the strengths of their setup and have really good quality with or without shiny graphics. So like, I like to think that my videos look like trash. No. But that lets me like make the videos because I, I can't draw. <laughs> so I do what I can, mm. yeah, longer conversation, but eh, yeah. don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up. Your videos are good. Your no, videos yeah. are. Uh, 
fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get validated. But yeah, no, um, the, uh, the motivation, I mean, I feel like this question is actually asking something like, how do I stay motivated? Like, like, how does the asker motivate themselves? And that's a, that's a much more complicated question. We, we sometimes get emails from people who are like, hey, I want to make a channel. What's your advice? And the advice I always prioritize is like, make sure that you love what you're doing because like, it's going to get hard. You need something to counterbalance that. And if, if, you know, if you're just carrying yourself through on like, oh man, I really want to hit this milestone. And I, I really want to like, I want this to happen. That's not the same thing as, man, I really enjoy what I'm doing. So like, a lot of the time when I'm working on something and it's tiring me out, I kind of remind myself that, like, I'm getting better at the skills I use to make videos every time I do them. So, like, I'm drawing frames for a video and it's tiring, but I'm getting better at art, and then I can use that in the comic. Or, like, I'm recording something and I keep flubbing a line, but I'm getting better at voiceover. And I like getting better at things, so that just automatically gives me the motivational boost uh, a lot of the time. And, you know, that doesn't work if you don't kind of love what you're doing and getting better at what you're working on, you know? Um, I've also found being really weird helps. Oh, um, yeah. And I, I mean just approaching what you're doing in a weird way, trying something outside the box. If you're especially trying to make a channel, do something wild. Usually your audience will appreciate that there was some creativity that went into a pretty something that could have been very generic or simple. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people start channels because they're inspired by other people's channels, and oftentimes they want to do stuff very similar to the stuff that inspired them, but you gotta have some of you in there, and, yeah. and probably probably the weird parts, you know, the weird parts of you are the parts of you that are you, you know? Yeah. Something that I like to say to myself, but also applies to, to pretty much anyone, is make something that only you can. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the more you work, the, the more stuff you make, the more you get closer to that thing only you could have made. Yeah. And, uh, that's always going to be worth making, you know? So, Excellent advice all around. This next question comes from Mordred the Fallen to Daniel Green. Uh, your disheveled goblinness. Regarding your book, if you could be one of your characters, who would you be? Ooh. Oh, God, I... I treat them so horribly. Um, oh my god! So there's would it make it easier to say before the events of Breach of Peace? <laughs> no <Hey, those> spoilers. <laughs> uh, I, I'm so I'm almost done with book two here, and I uh, I would probably choose uh, Holden, who's a, a center stage character for the second half of the book. But if I had mm -hmm. to restrict to Breach of Peace, uh, I'm going to choose someone who inflicts a lot of pain at the end, and then I just wouldn't inflict that pain, and I would have ah. their cool powers, and I'd be like, cool, I'll go be a good guy with these oh, yeah. cool powers. Yeah, that's the um, Yeah, and if, but if I had to like go through the actions of the story, literally no one. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story, just a little bit related to that. Someone on Tumblr a while back asked me, which of my comic characters I would want to hang out with. And I was like, you got to understand the shit I put these people through. Like one of them would tolerate me and one of them would kick my ass and I deserve it. So um, uh, I put that poor boy through so much crap in his backstory. Anyway, and the plot, we haven't gotten there yet. Spoiler alerts for future Aurora arcs coming up. Oh man. Oh, they expect bad shit to happen at this point. <laughs> Excellent. This next question comes from Ryu. To all, what do you think is the most overlooked part of world building? Like everyone talks about terrain, rivers, and mountains, but Ooh. no one ever talks about governments, for example. What's something that uh, people might want to consider spending a bit more time on when they're building out a, a new world or a creation of some kind? 
I, I might flip the question and suggest that there are things that people should maybe spend less time on because some things say. are given disproportionate importance when they really do not affect the quality of your story in the end. <laughs> well, for that matter, like quality of the story, definitely. But also there's this world building fallacy I've seen a lot of people fall into where they really feel like they need to conform too much to the way the real world works, even if their story has no reason to. So like, um, I... I had a really long Tumblr post about this. Like, if you have a world where, like, plate tectonics don't happen the same way, you don't need to worry about where your mountains go the same way they would work on, you know, Earth. And, you know, if the sun and moon don't work the same, then you don't need to worry about, like, desert forming at, at, at the right latitudes and shit like that. You know, people often use reality and real physics as like a yardstick they have to measure their fantasy world against when practically speaking depending on how you're building it a lot of the time they have nothing in common and they shouldn't so like the thing with the mountains and rivers and like biome formation you don't need to do that the way it works in reality you can just have weird shit happen like oh this jungle's in a weird location considering the temperate climate it's in well a wizard made it five thousand years ago and it's sustained by magic that's why it's there what are you going to do about it um, and a, a wonderful thing i want to add on to that if you do spend all that time on stuff people are going to criticize you for not being accurate if you even still are accurate my favorite example yeah. of this ever came from a mutual friend tim hello future me oh yeah where he put a yeah. map of new zealand in his video and like did it in a <laughs> fantasy way and someone's like that's not a realistic map and he's like it's <laughs> new zealand oh my god <laughs> poor tim oh my god God. That's so that's 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 such a thing that would happen to him too. <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I feel like, you know, when people are world building, there's certain things that do get a lot of focus, you know, planet shape, continents, where do you put the cities in relation to the rivers and the the fresh water and stuff like that. But like those are often the same worlds where it's like all the elves are tall, elegant white people in the forest, and all the dwarves are short, stocky, Scottish Jewish stereotypes. And it's like you couldn't world build a single culture for these people. <laughs> You were so focused on the mountain keep that you couldn't give the people inside it a personality or well, more you, than one personality, I guess. Every fantasy or sci-fi book ever, if you're writing in those genres, is also on a physics fundamental level broken, right? Because mm -hmm. as soon as you introduce yeah. a magic system, you are disobeying physics. So you can take whatever liberties you want. You can go full on absurdism and I am here for it, sister, do it. So <laughs> I just don't buy into that kind of like everything has to logically make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Internal consistency think... is much more important than real-world logic. Yep. Right. And also, like, this is my personal bias. When I uh, engage with a story, I almost always come from the character perspective. Like, mm. I, I know a lot of people much more interested in the plot or the themes. If I can't get into the characters, I really can't get into the story. Um, mm. And for that, I think that it's often very important to world-build the parts of the world that inform how the characters work and think like you know these characters live in and presumably grew up in this world so it informed the way they think and act and you know you can world build a lot of like complex cultural stuff around those characters how they live what they think about the world and get a lot of mileage out of that without ever having to look at a topographical map of the world and try and assume you know figure out where your your basins are supposed to go or whatever um yeah, and okay, if we're gonna, uh, I feel the need to step in as a gigantic fantasy nerd and give a piece yes. of an actual hardcore world building advice that I have found Good. to be immensely helpful to do, um, especially when finding things for your characters to interact with, to clash with, to work for the story. Uh, think of the world you're building from different uh, aspects of society. 
So yeah. think mm. of what living in the culture you're crafting will be like for a blacksmith versus a lord versus a homeless person versus a soldier. And think about, you know, the day-to-day life. Okay, are they respected in their position and why? Or is there less respect in their position in our world because of the logical things you've set up in your world? Having that can make it everything feel more fleshed out. It won't take a ton of page time to establish. And it can result in great storytelling beats because let's say you're in a far- your character's a farmer, but food's plentiful. People aren't going to really respect them a whole lot for being a farmer because this world, food's not an issue because people, I don't know, magic food out of their fingertips. I don't right. know. Yeah. Um, I had a similar thing um, just the way I was working on this where, you know, I think a lot of times when people write a fantasy world, there's this assumption of like, oh yeah, wizards and mages, they've got to be the coolest people around. And it's like, practically speaking, a lot of utility magic is probably not going to get you the the same kind of respect as like the archmage up in his tower or whatever um so like uh in the system i have where there's kind of these elemental magic systems it's like yeah if you're a stone mage you probably do a lot of construction work and all that that entails you're probably not the coolest dude on the block um (laughs) if you know and that's just that's just my personal preference i like a lot of utility magic but there's a lot of worlds where magic is a lot more weighty and a lot weirder and in that case it's like well, if most of your world doesn't deal with magic, how do you world build stuff? And, and how do you integrate magic into things that, in, in ways that would make sense based on how people live their lives and what shortcuts they come up with and just the natural process of living, you know? Yeah. Um, Which is actually something that drives me nuts in so many fantasy worlds where it's like this magic system would benefit from so much being used in a utility fashion for society yeah. and they never are because there's these mystique around magic users. But mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that would not exist culturally. If a wizard could step into a field and plant 10,000 seeds in a minute, that would be something eventually the culture would have happen because that's just how yeah. survival evolution works. So I, I, in my story, wrote in a reason why it wouldn't happen. Magic users literally give off radiation Okay, ha! that's a pretty good reason for people not to have them doing things just casually around the city. Yeah, I actually, I had to do something similar. Uh, I have uh, a system of, like, life magic that lets you do healing and plant growth and stuff, but it also lets you do body horror and mutations and shit, so the mages exactly. who can do that aren't necessarily seen as like, oh yeah, a healer, that's great. More like, oh good, an actually trained healer who really knows what they're doing. You know, if you have some child prodigy wandering around making all the plants and crops grow, that's usually a very bad side Um, you know there's all kinds of ways to handle this and you know if you're if you're writing your world and you're like oh no the way i've done this i've unbalanced everything i need to rewrite everything no man you can just like explain why it doesn't do that you you don't need to always world build out every implication of everything it can be like oh this doesn't happen because there's a cultural taboo or oh this doesn't happen because it can have bad side effects or you know Mm -hmm. if, if you want to have it so that you know, farming is still a thing that people do so that you can have farms as settings and background environments. That's fine. You know, you're not a slave to your own world. You're the one controlling how it grows. Last thing Um, I'll add is that it's important to not confuse thorough world building with good world building, and a lot of people do that. Spicy, (laughs) Uh, Some people will will say, I will read an entire book about world building and love it, and those people are fans of the Silmarillion. I was gonna (laughs) say, have fun with the Silmarillion. You'll be reading it for the next 60 years. Uh, Yeah, Um, that's valid. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that reveals more about my tastes. <laughs> yeah. Also, just really quick, because the person in the question mentioned specifically, like, we often don't see people world building out governments. I, I mean, listen, maybe it's just me. Governments are so boring. I don't want to world build it. It's just a bunch of people yelling at each other, <laughs> not making things work. I, I don't really enjoy world building that, so I tend not to, you know. I think a lot of the thing is that if you're the writer, you also don't really need to focus on the stuff that you don't want to write a lot of the time. Like, 
you know, it helps to flesh things out to be internally consistent, but you don't need to world build out like the entire system of government and, and agricultural management and, and what exactly the, you know, the chain of command is in the area. You don't need to do that if it's not going to be important and if you don't want to, okay? Yeah. Like, some people might ask, you don't need to answer. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, lots of great stuff there. So this next question comes from shortstop to Daniel Green. What stories are you currently reading that you absolutely love? This can be a novel, short story, comic, or any other form of media. And how might you present it to the OSP hosts so that they might be interested in reading it? Oh, that's a very uh, good question. And a caveat to the end. Now I'm in a challenge. Now it's a pitch meeting. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, you know, hit us with some log lines. I'm currently doing a lot of reading for stuff I think I would personally benefit from for my own writing. So I just got done reading a ton of sex scenes and I had to run a, <laughs> write a sex scene. So I was sitting in cafes reading sex scenes for like a week trying to, to learn. Um, but one book I constantly find myself going back to, which is tonally entirely different than mine, or series I mean, but I'm still learning so much in terms of making characters pop off the page, uh, crafting theme into narrative, is uh, Discworld. Discworld, hey. I will always read. I'll always come back to. I think it has the most consistently just fantastic characters from end to end. There's not mm. a bad Discworld book, in my opinion. And even though I'm writing something on the complete opposite end, I just am able to learn from it because Terry Pratchett, as an author, had the humor of Monty Python, but the wit yeah. of a genuine philosopher. And I think he's just one of the most rereadable, interesting people to ever pick up the pen. Absolutely. I, I'm not so good at prose writing. I've been trying to get better. Reading Discworld makes me want to sit down and write. Like, th- yeah. there's something about it. It just, like, gets the brain gears moving. Uh, well, so it's... now I also recommend this, Blue. You should also read Discworld. <laughs> Aren't there, like, a billion of them? <laughs> yes, but uh... listen, it's easier if you subdivide into the subseries. You should read the Guards novels, mm-hmm. and then maybe you should read the Witches novels. But, <laughs> but I read just, like, a seventh grade level. I'm so slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Witches ones are interesting. Like, I, I was reading them... Again, because like my, my parents read them to me when I was a kid, and I reread them recently, and I was like, wow, these make so much more sense now that I get the cultural jokes that are in them. Um, and I, <laughs> I think in conclusion, I, I came to the conclusion that I, I like the guards novels a little more than the witches novels. Something about the characters, I think. Because uh, especially, you know, when you start with like Weird Sisters, it's like, this is, this is good, but you can tell he's not quite figured out what he's doing yet. This whole thing is a, it's a Macbeth parody. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's fine. But, you know, when he kind of got out of the parodic writing and started doing more like, hey, let's talk about Thud for a minute. <laughs> like, that's when it really started to shine for me, I think. Um, well, I think I, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying, but I also I maintain the wishes. I think all of Discworld is underrated. So every time oh, someone yeah. brings up any Discworld book, I'm going to be like, you're wrong. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> I just have a man love for Terry Pratchett. But for me, his greatest writing was the Death series. I think it's genuinely extraordinary. And I want to just reemphasize what you said about prose, because for me, one of the judges, like one of the gauges of whether or not someone actually is good at judging prose is whether or not they mention Terry Pratchett in (laughs) Best of Prose. Because a lot of people, when they'll read Discworld, will say like, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't pick up on just how witty this motherfucker is. Like, he's (laughs) so good. God. No, it's really good. I, I gotta say, the death novels themselves, I do really like them. I still think the guards novels are top tier in my book, but I just love when death shows up in the other books. Like, he's oh, yeah. just so fun. And like, it's one of those things where it's like, if I read a whole book of this guy, I might be a little bit like, yeah, I get it. But if I, if he's just popping up, I'm like, yeah, that guy just died. So my man's showing up. <laughs> you know? well, it, it's great because like death is my favorite Terry Pratchett character, but mm. guards, guards has a better full cast. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. 
I just love everything about their dynamic, you know, because it's like a fantasy police procedural. That's so good. I, I gotta say, like, Guards Guards is good. Men at Arms is great. Feet of Clay is when it gets transcendent. Like, that was just so incredible. What are your thoughts on Small Gods? I, you know, I'm not actually sure I've ever read Small Gods. Um, uh, oh, I think it's maybe his best. I mean, I, let's see, I, I think I know about it. Um, is that the one about, like, the, the deity that sort of finds himself being a turtle and is kind of upset about it? Yeah. I know very little about this. Yeah, right, he, yeah. no one um, prays to him anymore, so he loses all his power, and he's, become, he's stuck as a turtle, and he gets mm. stuck with a monk uh, that is uh, looked down upon, and it's just, there's, it's, I don't want to spoil anything. It's just <laughs> the funniest, the clev- the most clever, the most engaging. It's slow at points, but in a very Terry Pratchett way. Blue, I'm yeah. so sorry. We're going to talk about this for the next four hours. <laughs> no, it's um, fine. I was going to say, as, as far as like crime procedurals go, I just got finished reading this book called Breach of Peace, and I really liked it a lot. <laughs> a different vibe from, from Guards, Guards, for sure. Definitely a different vibe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I begin my book with hanging a child. There's a little bit of a different vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, back in the comfortable arms of Terry Pratchett, I got to say, uh, I I like how he's not afraid to get into dark shit. Uh, I mean, that's part of why Thud is one of my favorite of his mm-hmm. books. But I also really like just how he started off deconstructing the fantasy tropes of the day. You know, he's got all these characters that are just parodies of the stock characters running around. There's like a, a clear Conan the Barbarian parody running around who's like 100 years old and still just as badass. Uh, but... I think at some point he sort of made this shift from thinking about this as something to parody to thinking about this as something to be immersed in. And that's when things got really good because that like, you know, when he introduces the dwarves, they're jokes. And then by the time he's writing about them in the guards novels, it's like, no, there's a culture here. Let's explore what that culture is and how fucked it can get. And then he starts exploring some really interesting stuff about gender at a time when that's not a thing people did in fantasy. Oh yeah. Uh, He was so ahead of his time in so much of what he did. And also, um, whoever introduced Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett gave the world yes. a gift. I mean, that was just magical. Um, yeah. Also, I, I just, I mean, I got to shout out my boy Carrot. Uh, I, I did a, a reading of, uh, I think, Guards Guards a while back on the channel, a partial one. And the chat was just full of people spamming the carrot emoji uh, because they loved my big bulky boy so much. Um, but I like him because of what he represents, because I'm a huge fan of Paragons. And I think Carrot is the best written Paragon I've ever seen in anything because... It's that whole, like, you know, really hope that a good man is not the one threatening you with the sword because, like, a bad guy will monologue, a good man will just kill you for the good of the world. Here it does that! He does that in at least one book! It's incredible! Ugh, I love my bulky boy. Such a good book. Excellent all around. Blue, you should absolutely read these. (laughs) I... I, I'm staring over to, like, my bookshelf and the, like, seven, like, books I really need to read for work and, like, five books <laughs> that people have given me, like, three years ago to read for fun. <laughs> uh, but to throw uh, one more out there that's a complete total change, something I've been rereading after completing Breach of Peace to, I think, better craft tone and character. Mm-hmm. I think the Millennium series has probably the, the first three books have maybe the best written characters I've come across full stop. Elizabeth Salander, Mikhail Bloomfist. Oh. It's a fairly in-concept generic story, and even those characters are not revolutionary, but the way they are presented and written is so Mm. 10 out of 10 uh, that I am envious of the author's ability, and the author who picked it up after he passed just didn't do it just. I think the series tanks under the new author. It's just my opinion. Um, But those first three books, I think, are 10 out of 10s. I love them. And if you love Scandinavian thrillers, I mean, they are the, the, the touchstone that everyone talks about for a reason. Awesome. Yeah. I need to look that up. I actually don't think I'm familiar with that one. 
It's the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know that one. I didn't know the name of the trilogy, but yeah. or the series. Yeah. A lot of people hear that and they think it's like, oh, is that like the girl with the train? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Different, different, different. There's also the girl with the train tattoo, which is just a different series entirely. <laughs> yeah. That's why Tom was the tank engine fanfic, and I would res- ask you to respect it, please. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> it's a crime. It's like, oh no, bad news. Someone got run over by a train. <laughs> but t- it turns out Thomas the Tank Engine's a serial murderer. That's the big twist. Mm-hmm. He just waits for oh, damsels in distress to be tied and he speeds up. <laughs> Him and his accomplice, Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> ah, excellent. Well, those are some quality recommendations for all of our uh, listeners out there if you're looking for something to read and if you are looking for something to write. We've got apparently one of those there for you, too. Uh, this next question comes from Sneaky Snick. For all, what are your favorite culture's cuisines? Huh, that's kind of timely, because we randomly mentioned culture cuisines we don't like. Oh, we just um, shit I- on Poland and Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> As if history hasn't done enough of that already. Yeah, God. <laughs> I, I will come to bat for, um, I, I love Thai food so much. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. I, my, my dad uh, lived in Thailand for a few years um, when, when he was younger, uh, and he brought back uh, many years later. It was like, hey, uh, small baby blue. Uh, try Thai food. I'm like, oh boy, this shit kicks ass. Uh, and then uh, I, as I've gotten older, I've tried more and more different types of Thai food, and it's just all good. It, it, it's, it's winners only in there. It's great. Yep, yep. Um, I I'll completely swear by... agree. Before I moved yeah. to Richmond, I had to make sure there were good Thai restaurants here, <laughs> several, yeah. so I could vet yeah, each, yeah. so at least one of them would be good enough. Thai food is <laughs> a banger every time. Yeah. I'll, I'll swear by dim sum in general. Um, yeah, thai good. food is excellent. Uh, I mean, honestly, like, I like cheese enough that I got to rep for Italian food, oh, yeah. you know? That, that's my jam. It's got to yeah. be. Yeah. Um, yeah, French and Italian food. Or, well, French and Italian. Uh, uh, f- French, for breads and French cheese, France is good. Goods. For like yeah. meals, it, Italy's better. <laughs> I've been to a couple way too fancy restaurants where like, it, and they're usually French, where like every meal looks good, but there's one thing listed in the ingredients where I'm like, I don't know about that. Yes, uh, I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> yeah, like baked goods, France is, you know, winners only, but like... Yeah. Yeah, Italy's where I go for the actual hearty meals. And Greek food. Greek food, I'm also oh, big. Yeah, I recently rolls. got turned on to Greek food. God damn, it's good. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it's so good. good. Greek food is great because you have, like, depending on, like, what part of Greece you're drawing from, you have, like, a really good seafood culture. You have a really good, like, like lamb and that kind of stuff culture. And then there's just ball in street food, like gyros, souvlaki. Like, it's, oh, it's yeah. all so good. It's just, like, that combination of flavors always works no matter what like combination of like proteins and carbs you're working with the greek seasoning palette is just fantastic and i like how they put lemon on everything that's yes (laughs) yes Uh, like saganaki is so basic it's like cheese set it on fire put it out with a fresh lemon suddenly bangers only it's amazing Uh, saganaki was actually invented in the states but it was invented in in chicago's greek town so it still checks out (laughs) yeah Listen, Saganaki rules, all right? I'll go to bat for it. I don't care it if it's like Greek, Greek it American. Does yeah. Uh, just it's a... been so long since I've heard anyone say Opa in person. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, just to keep it domestic, I also wanted to throw in uh, Cajun food. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're really underrated. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big, uh, I love spicy food, and I am. Uh, I mean, Chinese in general, but like Sichuan food specifically, like a good Mapo tofu just hits so different. Um, 
Also, I'm a little hungover right now, so this whole conversation <laughs> is sending me spiraling into like, what? How can I get like a euro <laughs> right now? <laughs> oh. Oops. <laughs> so I mean, I did this to me. I picked this question and I chose to. Oh man, this is a wild episode of the OS Pod. <laughs> We've know, been talking about sex. Indigo's hungover. We already got the explicit rating like checked off, so I figured if we're ever gonna be openly hungover on the podcast, this is the episode to do. <laughs> Oh man! So I'm I smoked a ton of weed yesterday. Let's talk about it. The craziest thing that I did uh, uh, yesterday was um, cocaine. Let's see. I, I built like a quarter of a puzzle and then got frustrated and stopped. Uh, <laughs> I ate a tasty brownie. Okay, nice. but what kind of brownie are we talking here? Uh, it, it was like, it was really rich, really rich chocolate, and it had like this kind of mixed raspberry cherry jam on the top. Do you have like really macadamia good. in there? Because that's good too. Uh, no macadamia, sadly, right. but yeah, no, really quality. Excellent. Oh, God. I think the closest We're all really establishing in. our characters very well right now in terms I mean, of like what a typical Saturday includes. This would be Real a talk, great zombie the... survival apocalypse crew. Let's just. Oh, it. yeah, for sure. 100%. I've got a shield and two swords in this house. It's great. I have. I will hide a zombie bite from you guys and be Aww. responsible for Blue's death. I'm just going to put I mean, we always need one of those in every yeah. group, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if I, I would be you, the first to go. To I'm, I'm way too much of a cinnamon roll. I would die so fast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got a pretty solid stick. I've got like a bow staff. I don't know how well that works against zombies, but I've got it. <laughs> I was a Boy Scout for a year. I think we could probably red hunker down the woods somewhere and <laughs> figure it out. <sighs> yeah, we'd be fine. I can climb trees real good, so we'll or be. Or I guess like maybe our quest would be like, all right, the world's screwed. Let's see if we can like find the last Thai restaurants in the world and just get one really good meal in before the world ends. We just do like ends. a, it's, it's Shaun of the Dead, but instead of hunkering down Trying at the Trying to tie pub, us back to the original question at hand. hunkering down at the Thai place. Well, I was going to say it's like Waterworld, but you know, you've got the, you've got the coordinates for the last Thai restaurant tattooed on someone's back instead of God. Mount Everest. Book of Eli, Thai restaurant edition. <laughs> and it's like you get there and the, and the only problem is they don't have any Thai iced coffee and that's oh. when I just die of despair oh my god that's hard to break yeah absolutely tragic like sorry we haven't been able to get any sweetened condensed milk since the world ended and I'm like okay I'll just <laughs> lie down out here <laughs> I'll hold them off you guys get to safety it's no it's very noble of me get out of here <laughs> you're just like sipping on like a cup of like milk tea Laying down on the ground, the last ever beverage. <laughs> yeah, like it's not the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, we we turn on each other to be the last one to have it, and then and then we all die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a zombie movie. It has to end with everybody dead, you know. Yeah. yeah. The final gotta... shot is just the coffee spilling into the sand, and like the. Oh so dead. no! <laughs> no! I mean, that, at that point, we're reaching like Twilight Zone levels of cruel irony. Yeah. <laughs> well, the coffee is actually the cure for the zombie plague. So, like, the last shot is you think you're about to get eaten, and you like throw your coffee at the zombie, you know, as a last ditch effort. But when it, it it somehow perfectly manages to drink the coffee and the, the zombie is cured and you realize the, the solution was at the Thai restaurant all along, you know? I didn't know this was an Edgar Wright movie. This took a turn, <laughs> I love it. Always try and make an Edgar Wright wow. movie. I mean, why would you do anything else? Uh, but we, we're coming up on time, so we should get to one last question before we <laughs> get even deeper into the pitch session that we've developed over this Q&A. Uh, this next last question comes from Yuka242. Uh, what's the perfect breakfast? Ooh. 
oh, okay, I have opinions, but I, I need other people to go first because I don't want to. Trust me, um, I'm going to start hot. You don't want to start with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty basic. When it comes to breakfast, you know, I like toast, eggs, hash browns, you know. A good sausage optional, like, but like. Perfect diner breakfast, you know, like just a little bit too greasy, like hash browns and some toast, bread, like you were saying, mm. eggs, and uh, just. Oh, that like just endless black coffee that hits so good. Oh, I could sit in a diner for hours. Hash browns, toast, eggs. I feel like if you're going full breakfast, because I don't eat breakfast very often, because at this point I'm nearly fully nocturnal. <laughs> so for me, it's like if I'm going to do breakfast, I got to do it right. You know, you make the whole spread, you, something fancy in the coffee department, you know, all that jazz. And also the, the trick, I've said this before, to make toast, you fry it in the butter. Mm-hmm. You don't just toast it mm-hmm. and then butter it. That just, you know, it uses the same amount of butter, but it's so much better. Um, I I don't go very hard for breakfast, but I have like a set of things that I really like. So for instance, I very much enjoy a nice simple bagel with cream cheese. I also really like uh, a peanut butter and jelly bagel. That that's a really nice way to start my morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am very simple, but I know what I like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go off for a minute here. Oh boy. Okay, yes. go off, go Ugh. off. <laughs> I just spent a good amount of this podcast uh, crapping on Irish food, but I want to say. There's one area they did not fail, and it is an Irish breakfast. Mm. They know how to breakfast because their drinking habits, I'm sorry, it's true, and they've mastered the morning recovery, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. If you don't know what a typical Irish breakfast is, it's basically your typical standard, like eggs, you got some toast, you got sausage, you got a cup of coffee, um, and then every Irish guy I knew would also have a pint. And it was so intimidating, oh, yeah. but it was so <laughs> magical to see these people start their day with a hearty, nice, typical breakfast and start drinking at 10 in the morning and then go to work. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that to me is the perfect breakfast because there's always like eight people. You're having a good time. You're getting to know them. You're just chilling. And everyone's setting an expectation for the day. That yeah. is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Irish people have failed food-wise fundamentally in every other meal, but for the <laughs> breakfast, they've knocked it out of the park with the vibe, the food, and the drink. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's fair. I The one thing, of, it, at least it, the, the drinking culture of the Isles, uh, I found it very uh, interesting when I went to London a couple years back, and like... I, I was visiting uh, a former roommate, uh, and he took me to meet a bunch of his friends for, like, lunches, and they were all just drinking in the middle of the day. It's like, guys, you're going back to work after this. What are you doing? But they don't care. They just do it. It's just it's fine. It's a fine That's thing. Like- and then I remember that, like, I uniquely have a very terrible alcohol tolerance, whereas, like, other people can drink and it's fine. Like, I have one drink, and I'm like, yeah, no, that's... That, that's me for the night. That's me set. All right, I'm done. Oh, wait, it's noon? Fuck. Oh, God. I, I seem to have a pretty good tolerance, although I haven't stress tested it, because I think alcohol tastes gross. It's bitter, and I don't like it. Uh, it's like you can have a drink in the non-alcoholic version, and it's the same drink but better. Um, but I did at one point go to a Passover Seder where instead of doing four sips of wine, it was four glasses, and by Oof. the end, I was exactly the same. So <laughs> it, odds are pretty good my tolerance is high, but, like, it just tastes bad. Why would I do that? It's like I, I've, I've visited a couple friends who are like, oh, do you want any cider? And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll take cider. And then I'm like, oh, you meant the alcoholic kind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I realize this tolerance. episode would reveal how much of a pansy I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I have the tolerance of, like, a high schooler. You're telling you're drinking wine, but instead you give them, like, cranberry juice. Like, I smell oh, alcohol, yeah. I'm tipsy. Like, it's a problem. Speaking gotcha. as the hungover member yeah. of this quartet, uh, a beer with breakfast <laughs> sounds real good right about now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh God. I uh, I actually funny story. I had my twenty first birthday on a dinosaur dig, and uh, after we got back to like semi civilization, like this tiny town in Wyoming. Uh, of course, we went to a bar to get like lunch and stuff, and they were like, "Yo, Red, you're you're legal age now. Get something to drink." And I was like, "Yeah, okay." And I ordered this little four percent alcohol cream soda. <laughs> it was pretty good. It would have been four percent better without the alcohol. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, like the other girls were like ordering these like ridiculous like sunrise mimosas or something, and they were like, "Here, try this." And I was like, "Sure." And apparently the face I made was very funny. I only know because of how they reacted. Uh, um, I so, need to know your life story because you just said the word dinosaur <laughs> dig and I've never got over the dinosaur phase oh, of my life. Dude, it was, I mean, same. Basically, uh, my my college, U- University of Chicago, had like, occasionally they'll have like spring semester or spring quarter, just like weird classes taught by like these random rotating just experts who come by and they're like, hey, I'll teach a class. And uh, one of them popped up on the roster dinosaur science and I read through it and it was like yeah we're gonna be studying paleontology and dinosaur bones and then at the end we're gonna go on a week-long field trip to the middle of Wyoming and we're gonna dig up this sauropod I found and I was like oh my god I need to be in this class and like I I sent the teacher an email because I was like hey listen man I'm not a bio major I'm not even sure I have all the course credits required but I would really really like to go on this dinosaur dig please and he was like you got spunk. Show up on the first day of class. <laughs> so, um, and then I basically spent six weeks or ten weeks uh, learning about dinosaurs and uh, drawing a lot of skeletons. And then we got to go on a week-long field trip and dig up a sauropod. And it was the best thing I've ever done. Like, I straight up peaked. I, I'll never become that cool again. Oh, that's awesome. um, I'm just imagining you on a field trip with 30 Rosses from friends. <laughs> oh, God. No. <laughs> um, no, it was actually a pretty small class, which I couldn't believe. I was like, who in their right mind isn't Seriously. taking the fucking dinosaur science <laughs> class? But it was like, it was a really early morning class. Like, I sacrificed a lot to be up that early, the three days of the week. And it was taking place in, like, the fossil lab, which was in the decommissioned, like, high-energy sciences building that was always slightly radioactive because they used to do parts of the Manhattan Project under it. You know, all that jazz. So I could see why people weren't, like champing at the bit but i was like it's fucking dinosaurs did none of you have a childhood so it was incredible i loved it um amazing they didn't appreciate jurassic park oh Oh. dude the night before we left uh i i was surprised because i was like yeah you know all i know about jurassic park is that nobody like you know the the dinosaur stuff isn't like 100 percent accurate so you know i'm here with a bunch of professional paleontologists i don't really think they'll buy it but they were all like dude why do you think i got into paleontology this movie was my childhood and then we'd be watching it and be like "Eh, that's not a velociraptor but you know we're having a good time You believe it or not, if you get a room full of paleontologists and you show them Jurassic Park, you're not gonna hear, "Oh, it should have had feathers." Oh, why is it too big? <laughs> it doesn't have the right kind of rending claw. You're just no. They're just like, "Oh, did you see how it totally spat poison into that guy's face?" <laughs> Radical. The reactions that you. We should. also watched the first Land Before Time. Oh, uh, oh man, this is we're gonna get into too much of a tangent if we start talking about the Land Before Time movies. So, um, <laughs> Red, would you like to take us out? Uh, all fourteen of them. <laughs> um, you remember oh, that, God damn uh, that uh, you got me. You got that me again. thing that you uh, have to do at the end of every single podcast episode that we have never wait, once nailed. Re- real quick, Red, Red, before. <laughs> real up? quick, Red, before you take us home, uh, Daniel, where can people find oh, you? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm just Daniel Green online. Uh, if you go to YouTube and put that in, I'll come up as well as some audition tapes for an actor who was popular for a minute named Daniel Green. I'm not the old guy with the black hair, I'm the young guy with the annoying blonde haircut. And Wait, uh, is that the voice actor? The voice actor who was in Yu Gi Oh? <laughs> yeah. Voice of... <laughs> Yo! Our boy. 
His his audition tapes are on YouTube. Not for not for you. And this is I think I'm actually thinking of a different guy. I'm thinking of a guy from like the '80s who uh, uh. he looked like stereotypical macho man. But I, the important person, <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm just Daniel Green. Put it in. I'll come up. Uh, the cooler Google Daniel Google has graced me with the search algorithm to finally uh, exist. So that's that's nice. Mm. We will link uh, Daniel's channel and everything down in the show notes below. So if you want to find him, find those. Natch. All right. Uh, <clears throat> thank you all so much for listening. I don't have my script in front of me, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, let's see. Uh, if you have a question for the pod, uh, we have uh, the Ask OS Pod channel on our Discord, which I believe is linked mm-hmm. in the show notes. Um, uh, and we have links to various other things that we do in the show notes as well, including our YouTube channel, which I kind of assume you probably knew about before finding this podcast, but you never know. Uh Tune in in two weeks for the next episode. That's we don't normally say that, do we? No, but you know, That's, add it if you I want. Like this is new. No, you're doing yeah, great. Keep going. Keep going. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, until until next time, I have been red. I have been blue, and Daniel, say that you've been Daniel. <laughs> I've been a goblin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this has been an overly sarcastic podcast. Woo. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. We'll be back on June 23rd, but if you miss us before then, be sure to check out our YouTube and Patreon, linked in the show notes below. Got a question for the pod? Head to Ask OS Pod on Discord for a chance for your question to be featured on air. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want more on our guest, Daniel Green, check out the links to his channel and book in the show notes. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go get some coffee.